I'm surprised you didn't get we didn't get blown up for the the comparison for the Redskins versus the Kikes. We keep waiting for it. Yeah, well, we're allowed to say it, so I know that's like you. I could I could say homosexual slurs, and I can say it, and I will have fights with other gay people about why I can't say it and why I don't care if they say you shouldn't say that. It's a fun word. I'm reclaiming it. Yes, that's how I am with hype. Yeah. <laughs> Hot pot of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the South, progress cannot wait. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pot of the South, a production of Change Tennessee. Pull up a chair and refill your sweet tea as we peel back the layers of Southern politics to get a better understanding of what's going on and why it matters. My name is Gabe, and today we have a full house. We're joined, as always, by Knoxville's gayest forger of shiny math rocks, Maggie Loveday. Heyo! And we also have in the house Tennessee's galactic communist revolutionary, Drew Dyson. I came out of the closet just for this guy. So all those years back at Catholic were just, or that was just practice runs? It was practice. That was practice, Gabe. Well, it is great to have you back, Drew. Do you have any good news on the front of bringing down the centrist galactic republic for us? No. Unfortunately, uh, you can expect some cynicism from me today. The centrists are strong is what you're saying. You know, it took the originals and the sequels to really just knock out the empire. So if you count the sequels. Uh, so we got some we got some work ahead of us. Fitting that we're talking about the galactic centrist because we're going to take another trip down to the still today and see what's brewing as we approach the midterms for 2022. And there are quite a few centrists in that race as well. But before we you know, crack open our shine and get those heads and tails. Drew, what's something that you feel like needs a good spotlight right now? So I would have to say we're going to be focusing on this probably uh, within this podcast in and of itself, but we won't really have time to get into the semantics of it. So just talking about the reconciliation bill here shortly, we've seen this bill parsed down from the original three plus trillion dollars that was uh, originally proposed, now down to $1.7 trillion. And we're getting news that, no, there's not gonna be any two years for each community college. There's now not going to be any paid parental leave. And, and I just have to say that it's important that this bill passes, but it's also important that a good bill passes. It is important that we get a win that actually benefits working families. And if we're having to continuously parse down what we actually should be fighting for, that we're going to continue to leave families to hang out and dry. The, the final bill has yet to be written, and I know progressives in the House and Senate are still pushing back on a lot of this, but I think it's important to note that uh, we still have time to contact Democrats uh, in the House and Senate and demand certain things be put into this bill because we, we can talk about how this bill is going to do a lot of good on climate. We can talk about how this bill is going to do a lot of good for universal pre-K. Those are all great things, but we also promise voters a lot more than that. And this is our last real chance to get something passed. And the fact that we're not going to be big involved is worrisome. And I know it, it's hard to say that this is a spotlight when I'm sure we all have fatigue over this damn reconciliation bill since we've been talking about this since, what, May, June, something like that. Four times it's passed. 
Yeah, I know. We, we're still here right now talking about it. But this bill is going to pass probably, I would say, before the Thanksgiving holidays. And so it's really important that until the final bill is released, that we're continuing to put public pressure on these Democrats to make sure that we include everything we can in there, even if they're, they're saying it's already been thrown out. Until that final bill is written, until a vote has been cast, nothing is off the table still. And we just have to keep up the public pressure campaign on the senators and representatives that are willing to capitulate just to feel better about going back to their districts and saying, well, I shot down paid family leave. So you might not be able to stay with your child right after you have birth or adopt or et cetera. But guess what? I saved us $400 billion. So just it's it can feel disheartening. But one, we have to keep fighting until this bill is passed to make sure it is the best bill it can be. And two, this should also be a good reminder that primaries are a very, very, very important thing and that you need to pay attention to what your representative was advocating for, what they weren't advocating for, and if we need to put someone more progressive in their place. Especially talking about how the bill has been pared down. Uh, I was listening to NPR today and they were discussing the climate elements of it and how it's pretty much become the, uh, I forget who they were speaking with, but they described the climate elements now of all carrot, no stick. So like they just ripped out all of the punishments for companies that don't meet the climate goals. So it's like, cool, if you do it, good for you. But if you don't, it's concerning. And those are the things that we should be paying attention to, especially right now before the final bill has been actually written. Right now, everything that they're talking about saying that they have a deal or a potential deal, that is just a verbal deal. There has not been a final written version of this bill just yet. So like I said, just keep pressuring your representatives. I know that several organizations across the country are staging events with various representatives and senators. And those are the kind of things we need to see right now as, as we're heading into this kind of final mad dash for this bill to pass. There's something to chew on and think about. Uh, definitely quite a big spotlight. I mean, that's the whole damn stage. Open up that light and just let it flood in. But we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna jump into what can we expect now that we're about a year out from the midterm elections. You can't talk about influencing elections without talking about our number one supporter, Charles Koch. With most of the pro-Republican PACs out there coming from the Koch to Puss, there is no one better out there when it comes to influencing election outcomes. Charles Koch, my candidates will win because I don't have a budget to lose. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in with us today. And we're going to, again, we're going to kind of talk about the midterms. We're still a year out, so a lot can happen between now and then, but it's kind of important to understand how things have been flowing. Um, just for kind of a quick recap, as we've gotten more and more, and these numbers will change. As of right now, you have 34 Senate seats are up for grabs in the 2022 midterms. All 435 House of Representatives seats are up like every two years. So super important on that end. Uh, and of those, you know, there's about 19, 20 retirements. 
on the books right now that are happening between now and then. So there won't be an incumbent in those races. And th these numbers will probably continue to grow in terms of retirements. And there will probably be some Senate retirements as well, increasing that number. And then also at the state level, you have 36 gubernatorial races up for grabs. And our good old Tennessee is among those. So Bill Lee's seat is getting a little hot. Probably not too hot because the popular vote does not bode well here because of bullshittery. But who knows? Anything can happen between now and in a year, especially with him trying to ramp up a 2024 presidential run. Sales take that just makes me sick to my stomach. Well, he didn't even get a percentage on a, a popularity poll, so. They're probably like, Bill Lee? Who's that? So, Drew, I know you've been following these midterms kind of a little more closely because you're a nerd like that. I have no life and I enjoy misery. So I follow U.S. politics. But yeah, Gabe, so I've been I've been keeping up with this. Uh, and I have to say, from the last time we talked when I was slightly optimistic, I've turned cynical. That doesn't mean much. A lot can change. There's 376 days between now and then. But let me give you the basic overview of what what we're seeing right now and why I think Democrats and progressives everywhere should be panicking and should be doing everything they can, especially within the next few months, to start preparing and start getting ready to again give it their all because we are at the we're at the end of our ropes with voter legislation. It does not seem that anything will pass uh, unless they are getting rid of the filibuster and again seems highly unlikely. So we're going to be facing a barrage of voter restrictions across uh, southern states, many red states. We're going to see gerrymandering take place very conceptibly, and we're going to have to combat that with a lot of our candidates running. The other thing that we're looking at that's a worrying sign is, in general, the party that wins the presidency does not retain the House. The modern exception to that is George W. Bush in the 2002 election. And keep in mind, shortly before those elections, we had the terrorist attacks, and that boosted George W. Bush's popularity, skyrocketing him. What we're seeing right now is the RCP average, the real clear politics average for Joe Biden right now is he is at his lowest approval rating since taking office, currently with 42.6%. This all started with the Afghanistan evacuation. I refuse to call it botched. I could, I could go on more about that, but with the Afghanistan evacuation, uh, we saw his approval rating begin to drop. And we haven't seen it really uptick. His tenure in office has somewhat stalemated with the stagnant movement of legislation. You know, we heard, gosh, a few months ago that we were getting an infrastructure bill. We all were hooray for that. And then progressives were going to stall that until we got more of what we wanted. And kudos to them for doing that, because who knows if we would have gotten anything or not if they hadn't done that. But all that's playing into a lower approval rating for Biden right now with the messages of Dems are in disarray, and constantly having to fight back against some of these other narratives with the economy still slowly upticking, inflation still being high, and people are still not seeing the huge returns from what we assumed was going to be a huge growth after the COVID pandemic, which we're still in. But with that, these are some worrying signs that we're looking at right now, just, just as we're getting into this one year mark. As we're recording this, we're not exactly to a year. By the time you're probably listening to this, we have passed the year mark. November 8th, 2022 is the midterms. To kind of talk about, you know, how the 
party in power usually loses out on the midterms, with the exception of the 2002 election. Biden's been around for a while. He definitely has some uh, deep state connections. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I think, yeah, right now he's talking about with the real clear politics projections, uh, approval of Joe Biden. I think when we talked about this last time, the Democrats were actually expected to kind of have a push and not gain. It was, I think the projection was to like lose some houses in the House due to redistricting. And then they were going, the projection was like to gain like two seats in the Senate. That was four or five months ago. Who knows what could happen with that? I mean, we were going in assuming that the Senate would have been a push best case scenario. Currently, it would have been smart for me to revisit this and see where the current standings had us back when we talked in the summer about the midterms. But the 2022 generic congressional vote still has Democrats up by two points. So we're still favored. However, something I want to point out to everyone is that's a very tight margin. In 2018, when we had the big blue wave and we took back the House, we were favored by nine points when we won a lot of those. Currently, like I said, we're favored by two points. In 2020, we were favored by 3.1 points. And we lost seats, almost lost the majority. So these are warning signs that there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done because we're going to have this gerrymandering to push back against as well. The thing that we're going to also want to look at that's going to be quite different from 2020 into 2022 is it's not a presidential election year. Trump is not on the ballot. So we still also have to look at what is the effect that Trump is going to have on these races. We're still currently seeing him saying, hey, don't go vote to a lot of his people. And that narrative definitely did help in Georgia during the special elections there. But we just don't know how this is going to affect us. And we don't know how this is going to affect independence in states that and districts we definitely need to win right now that are dissuaded with Biden and are, you know, he's hemorrhaging popularity among them at the moment, whether fairly or not. So those are things that are going to have to be worked on within the next year to ensure that we're actually able to keep the House. And just to remind everyone right now, the current majorities in the House is we hold 220 seats to Republicans 212. It takes 218 in one party to reach majority. So that just shows you we have the most razor thin margin right now in the House and Republicans can already gerrymander their way to a few seats. And that's what we have to watch. We're going to watch them do that. Then we're going to be on defense because you know, assuming right now it does not look like any voting rights legislation that's getting passed to help up. No, it's not. And, you know, I think it's important, you know, how you kind of talk about the polling numbers, especially in the age of Trump, the post-Trump era, it's really hard to trust polls anymore. Like you can't just take it in the bag like you could back in the 90s where it's like, oh yeah, you know, it's a half point margin of error. Who knows what these polling numbers, how they actually translate because you cannot factor the Trump effect. Well, there's also like that question of how are they getting their polls? So I had someone text me about our local elections polling to see if I like, am I going to vote? Blah, 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 blah. And it when it came to the answer of what is your gender and they only gave me male or female as an option. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to text you back non-binary. And there were more questions after that. 
I knew exactly who this uh, survey came from once I saw that one. Yes. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to say non-binary and uh, let's see how this goes. And I didn't get any more questions after that. And I was like, okay, so you're not using my polling answers, I see. So there's also that, like, I that bugs the hell out of me every single time. So I'm like, where are the polls actually coming from? Who's taking these polls? Well, you bring up a good point, Maggie, that the way that polls are conducted a lot of times is they're conducted on landlines, and they're also conducted on what their metrics assume they should be getting. So they're assuming that they're getting enough non-college ed educated white voters to respond to these surveys or to respond to these polling questions. And what we're seeing is that they're underweighing those pollers with more college educated white voters. And we're not seeing them balance that out. And that was a big problem that we saw in 2020 and in 2016 that wasn't really worked out. When you corrected for that, the polls actually did match up more with what actually happened. So when, when it has been corrected, it, it did that. In 2018, the polls were a lot closer to what they were. And that was somewhat of kind of a lucky shot again, because Trump was able to bring a lot of these non-college educated white voters back into the fold or to participate in the process for the first time. So I think, yes, I think there absolutely has to be a way that we are re-looking at how we are gathering polling data if we want polling to even be effective anymore outside of just a snapshot of what it is. Don't tell Nate Silver that. He might cry if you tell him that his data is cucked. I will tweet that at him right now. To make Nate Silver cry would make my week. I think it would make everyone's week. As I get my sources from 538 at the moment. To go full circle, like it is important though to still get out, like, because that's the only way any of these midterms, like we're going to be competitive. It, you have to go in assuming that the polls are going to be wrong. Like it's going to be like a 2016 era polling where it's just going to be completely fucked and be excited. I know it's super hard to be excited. Like it sucks to sit there and watch this reconciliation bill start at $3 trillion and then get cut and then get cut and then get cut. And at the end of it, you're stuck holding the bag saying, what's left in this? And yeah, you kind of do have to look at the silver lining of it and be like, look, there's still a lot in here that we have to fight for and that we that this is going to be the foundation moving forward. And we can't build that foundation if we just get if progressives just get completely shut out come midterms. And I think the important thing too is because I was I was going through this the other day when I started seeing some of these key parts of the reconciliation bill get get kicked out. You know, progressives and Democrats had an exhausting time from 2016 to 2020. I think a lot of us worked our asses off. We were constantly out there doing things, trying to keep this administration from destroying this country. And we got very exhausted after we were finally able to rest a little bit right after Biden won. You know, there was a little bit of a respite. And I think for a lot of people that fatigue caught up to them. I've, I've seen a lot of that within progressive circles right now that it's trying to get restarted and refreshed and, and get back out there has been hard. And then you kind of compound what you're seeing right now with the reconciliation bill when we control all these levers of government and we're not able to get these progressive things done. And I felt that way too. It felt, it felt like a stab in the back. Like we were working to try and make sure that Democrats got elected. You know, I gave money, I made calls, I knocked doors. And for all these people, especially that got out for the first time, it feels very disheartening. You know, what I ultimately came to the other day was it is very disheartening 
But I know that if we lose the House or we lose the Senate, we're not going to have those conversations again. And we, we can't do that. What we have to do is make sure more Democrats that are more progressive get into office so that way they can dilute the issues of mansion and cinema. If we get at least one more senator into the Senate, then that just makes mansion and cinema's voice even less necessary. And if you get two more for that matter, we practically don't have to worry about them. It becomes to the, the next most conservative in the Senate, which, you know, it's probably not a short throw to whoever that is. But if we're able to get more people in there, we're going to have more voices and the more centrist voices aren't going to be as a determining factor in the policies. I kind of want to move on a little bit because we touched on it earlier, you know, talking about like a post-Trump era that we're voting in now because it has a that has a huge ripple effect and he's not going away. I mean, he's talking of running again in 2024. We're going to make America great again. Again, I need to know who is doing his marketing because they deserve a fine raise. And you know, that guy was sweating it too. Which was like, God, what are we going to put on? And you know, it was a guy. It definitely has the making of a guy that did this. It makes it easier for those hats that they didn't sell because then they're just like, oh, we just embroider again on the very end of it. They're going back with a Sharpie right now again. Honestly, they probably hired a woman, uh, a female or woman to do it because they can only, they can pay them 30 cents less on the dollar. Well, are you just calling out Ivanka Trump on this one? They would just, she would just outsource it to China. But, you know, Trump has been, you know, kind of throwing his massive amount of weight around in these midterms. And I mean, massive amount of weight in physically and in his political power. I mean, he's a big guy. Like, I mean, there's, there's no way around that. He's like, what, six something and six something around too. But in particular, you know, the two, the, the biggest one that he's putting his thumb on the scale for is the Virginia governor's race, which by the time this episode comes out, will be in the books. But Trump is putting his, you know, putting his massive thumb on the scale for the Virginia governor's race. Uh, it's been out of necessity for him because of a lot of bluer voters have been moving to Virginia to escape their hell holes. But Trump is trying to be trying to be Trump again. Virginia is a great example of it. And then also over in North Carolina, in the North Carolina Senate race, he's endorsed Ted Budd, who opened that endorsement with welcome arms. He like could not, he was over the moon about the Trump endorsement, despite being labeled a loser by Trump for months when he lost uh, in the primary race not too long ago. So we, we can kind of see the, the Trump effect coming back into play, not necessarily through him being in the race. So, you know, I think that'll be really interesting, especially, you know, when we're talking 34 Senate seats, the entire House of Representatives up for grabs to see who is going to get the, the MAGA seal. Let me, let me go back to the Virginia race on this, because the Virginia race is going to be a very interesting race to watch for those that aren't around Virginia or don't pay attention to Virginia or are in Virginia. 
Virginia holds off-year elections for their state races, and they're a very weird state. The governor is only elected for one term. They can't run for a consecutive term. Uh, Terry Colliff is the former governor of Virginia. Uh, Ralph Northam was elected after Terry McAuliffe, and Terry McAuliffe is now coming back for a second term as governor, and he's running against uh, Yunkin, who is some kind of executive, banking executive. God, no, he's, he's something stupid that hates working class people. Did you, he was like a private equity guy. Oh yeah, there you go. See, he hates poor people. There you go. He's like the Trump version of Mitt Romney in Virginia, if, if that made sense. If you're following that logic, don't try to. Anyways, Gabe, I think you mentioned this, that, that Youngkin has, Trump has been campaigning on his behalf, but Youngkin has also been trying to like keep his distance away. So there's a play that Youngkin is trying to make to the suburbanites that Trump lost. Like, hey, you know, he's embraced the big lie and he's backed away from it also. He's also focusing more on issues like critical race theory, other cultural issues that, you know, the right loves to focus on, but doesn't really have a plan for anything else. And Terry McAuliffe is campaigning on his previous record and continuing the trajectory that Virginia is currently on. This is going to be a big test for Democrats. Joe Biden won the state by 10 points in 2020. And we're going to see whether or not Democrats come out. What we're going to be looking for is if we win, did we lose margins anywhere that we previously had? And what were those? Because those are going to be the greatest bellwethers for what we can expect in the upcoming election. And if we lose then fire alarms be going off as to how we prevent a total catastrophe from happening in the midterms, because you're going to see that democratic enthusiasm is way down, which is something that you don't want at all. We should still be very much focused on this, but there's going to be a lot of warning signs if Democrats come out of this not winning the governorship. Things that I'm most interested in is Northern Virginia, where it's a much more heavily diverse population, and it's one of the areas that helped deliver Biden's win, but also a lot of wins in the 2018 midterms. That's going to be an interesting one to look at, an area to look at to see how well we're doing. Did we increase any margins? Did margins fall off? Were there any demographics that we did worse with? Those are going to be the kind of things that, that we look at, as well as what was the surge in Republican voters with Trump not on the ballot? It's hard to gain that with Trump not being on the ballot, but with it also being an off-year election as it is. But we want to see if those voters that came out in 2020 and 2016 for Trump are still showing up for him after the fact. Yeah, like that'll definitely be an interesting race like you're talking about, uh, Drew, with Yunkin and McAuliffe, kind of how that's going to play out. Because it is, that absolutely is the benchmark of how badly have the Democrats fuck the pooch with connecting to the voters. I think it is going to be a bloodbath. I don't think it's going to, it's going to go the way that they're thinking it is because Democrat logic, you start negotiating from the middle because you want to appease everybody rather than getting people, getting your base riled up to be vocal and to demand better. I mean, that's Democrat logic. So I think that you're going to see that on the walls following this uh, Virginia governor race coming up. But also, you know, I kind of want to talk, you know, we kind of touch base on North Carolina, I think, is another kind of benchmark state. I mean, it went for Obama back in 08, uh, and it's kind of flip-flopped 
back and forth between could it go red, could it go blue? And, you know, especially in the this past the 2020 election, I mean, it could have gone blue, except for like when it came to the federal elections, you know, there were the sexting scandals, quote unquote sexting scandals. It was like, oh, baby, I hope you have a good night. Man, no show affection to woman. Wrong. Uh, well, OK, so you're bringing up the Senate and I think it's important to talk about that because North Carolina is going to be a key player in all of this coming up in those elections as well. CNN every month kind of releases, you know, their top 10 races to watch in the Senate or or let me let me put it this way. They rank their top 10 in the order to watch that the likelihood that they will flip. So kind of going down that list in the states that we really need to pay attention to. CNN is ranking Pennsylvania as the number one seat to watch. It's going to be interesting. Pat Toomey going out. There's a contentious Democratic primary that will take place between more progressive contender Lieutenant Governor Fetterman and more moderate centrist uh, Representative Connor Lamb. There's a couple other names in there. These are probably the two that are the biggest names at the moment. Pennsylvania, of course, went for Joe Biden. Pennsylvania has a Democratic governor. So it'll be interesting to see how this state ends up going and which way they end up leaning. Pennsylvania, unfortunately, can go either way. Its other senator is a Democrat. So that's going to be the biggest state that Democrats have the biggest chance to flip. And then, of course, likewise, the biggest state that Republicans have the chance to flip is Georgia with Raphael Warnock. Very close race, won it in a special election. It's definitely doable for we're not to win that race again, especially right now. Trump is pushing for former football star Herschel Walker to, you know, get in. Doesn't live in Georgia. Yeah, I love these things. Plus, the good thing is he's a very problematic candidate at the moment. Trump practically has endorsed him, I believe, and it's stopped any other Republican from jumping in the race. And it has Georgia Republicans terrified. So, That'll be an interesting race to watch and see how that unfolds. Uh, Wisconsin being the number three, that's Republican Ron Johnson. Wisconsin, of course, went for Biden. Wisconsin also has very progressive Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin in there. And then you have someone that's far right, like Ron Johnson. Very interesting to watch and see what it does. Uh, Of course, a Democratic governor barely won his race as well. Number four is Arizona with Mark Kelly. Going to be interesting to see how that race plays out. And then Gabe, of course, number five is North Carolina with Richard Burr retiring. Richard Burr uh, also voted to impeach Donald Trump. So he's taken some ire uh, from that. And like you were saying, it's a contentious field that he's already endorsed him. Again, North Carolina Republicans are very nervous at him endorsing so early on. It's unclear who is going to emerge in the Democratic field as possibly a front runner. Uh, and like you mentioned, North Carolina's finicky. North Carolina gets very close to becoming a blue state. It, it turned blue in 2008, but hasn't turned blue again since. But it's been within a few points each time, though. Like, it's, it's close. It's, it's like on the cusp each year. Like, we think, like, you think it'll happen, and then it doesn't. And so on the front end of this, the important thing, the first five that, that we've gone over, two of them are Democrats. So within the most likely to flip, Two of those are Democrats, and we could lose our majority within that margin. So while we have, this is probably a good year for for Senate Democrats in terms of, you know, playing defense, we're a little bit evenly divided, especially as we get to the the next five, because we have New Hampshire Democrat Maggie Hassan, who has to hold on to her seat. They are trying to court the current governor, Chris Sununu. 
I always mess up his name. We're just going to call him the current governor. He's very popular. He has been elected. And in a head-to-head matchup, currently, it's a very close race, even with some with Sununu leading that Senate race. So that's going to be a very important one to watch, as well as Nevada's race with Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. These are two states that we have somewhat relying to be heavily Democratic, and we definitely are still going to have to make sure that we're paying attention to them and covering our backs with that. What makes Nevada interesting is that uh, it's a state that we could win, but there's a lot of Democrats, especially mainline and moderate Democrats, they're very nervous after the Democratic Socialist takeover of the state party. They're worried that there's not going to be quite an understanding and grasp of how to get the movement going on the ground in Nevada. I'm a little more optimistic that I think these individuals will be able to figure that out, but it's still a race that we're going to need to watch and make sure that we're giving support on as well. The rounding out the last states are the more long shot chances we have. Not impossible, but, you know, number eight is Florida. Florida has let us down these past couple of years, but any chance that I get to say Marco Rubio could be leaving the Senate is a great day. And so I'm very hopeful for whoever becomes the Democratic nominee for that. Currently, Val Demings is probably the front runner in that race running against Marco Rubio. It'll be a very interesting race to, to watch Ohio, Rob Portman's retiring, and then number 10, The longest shot that we have on here is Missouri. The reason that this is rated is because Senator Roy Blunt is retiring. And we have seen in the past Democratic senators recently to come out of Missouri, as well as former Secretary of State uh, Jason Kander making a very close bid for the Senate as well in that state just back in 2016 when Trump was elected. So it's an interesting state to watch. Deeply red, but the right candidate could possibly maybe pull off a miracle. And these are the states that we're going to be watching in the Senate. I know I, I listed off a lot. You might as well have just been went listening to like a damn NPR. But this is to give you an idea of when we're focusing on these midterms, we're focusing on the House and on the Senate. These are going to be where the races that we watch are going to be the most important for us coming up. And there's still a lot that can be covered. And there's going to be a lot more that we're going to focus on within these next couple you know, within this next year as we keep bringing these to you. But I felt it was important to highlight the Senate seats that we're watching at the moment. I think watching these seats and kind of how they play out is really going to come down to what messaging is embraced by these candidates and by these front runners. The Republican strategy is pretty set in stone. You know, it's voter fraud, it's CRT, it's law and order, it's gender identity. It's all these like hot button culture war bullshit topics that they love to talk about. Personally, my favorite messaging thing they're using is the voter fraud, because the messaging that's coming out of the voter fraud is there's no point in voting, which is just a beautiful piece of irony to get people to go vote for you is to tell them that voting is pointless. Don't go vote because it doesn't count, but I need you to vote for me. And, you know, critical race theory is always a fun one, too, because they don't actually know what the hell it is. They think, his, they think just teaching history, U.S. history, is critical race theory. When it's like, no, our founding fathers were awful pieces of shit. They're just terrible human beings. Like, that, it's okay to teach that. But no, American exceptionalism, never say sorry for your past, bullshit. And, you know, and law and order, big police budgets are better. If your local police force for 
podunk talent America doesn't have an MRAP, then what are you spending your tax dollars on? Tanks for tots. So yeah, so I mean, the Republican strategy is pretty set in stone on what we can expect to come from them. I think what's not very clear yet is what the Democrats' messaging is going to be. I, I mean, I think we could go for the obvious low-hanging fruit here is that they're definitely going to try and focus on whatever they pass within this reconciliation bill and the infrastructure and the economy. And I don't know if that's enough. Knoxville's local election has been like, stop Trumpism from coming to your local. And I think that's still going to be something that, that we see is that, you know, if we give Republicans power again, they're just going to basically do whatever Trump wants. Yeah. And so they're like, stop Trumpism from coming to your city council. Like I got a text message that said that. And I was like, well, that's effective, I guess, to get people out to vote. They're not wrong. You have candidates that use very dehumanized language and other candidates that drink their own urine. We've got a lot of fun things happening here in our neck of the woods in Knox County. One of my favorite sentences I've ever written was about the Knox County or uh, the Knoxville city elections. Our candidates believe that shopping carts cause COVID and drinking your own urine cures pink eye. <laughs> Never a sentence I thought I'd write, but here we are. I, and you know what? For for candidates or for, for individuals here in Knoxville, that's going to be a good bellwether for us too. If, you know, our county is about 55% Republican, 45% Democrat, our city is about 60% Democrat, 40% Republican. And that's reflected in our city council. But there's definitely been a shift now to try and take over these local elections by Republicans, which we're not going to let them do. Especially during the pandemic because of the mask mandate issues that were happening. And I'm wondering if that's going to be something that they, like the Democrats go off of as well as using what happened during the pandemic as essentially what they're going to be riding in on. And I think the important thing right now is that you can see where Democrats' message is probably going, but it seems like an incomplete message. And I don't think they've done a great job effectively presenting that. And maybe as this reconciliation bill and infrastructure bill comes to a point, maybe we're going to start seeing that be more displayed. But until until then, I don't think we're going to have a worked out message and redistricting it makes it harder. Uh, some states are still trying to wrap them up. Some states still don't even have maps yet, uh, our state being one of them. And I know, Gabe, you all talked about that last week, so I won't go back into that. But all that's to say is you have to be very effective in that census year because you're going to have candidates that you're keeping your fingers crossed are going to stay. Uh, you're going to have candidates and other individuals that are going to be now fighting and, and jockeying for for different seats. And so you just have to be prepared, especially when we know we're probably playing defense on this and we could lose the House and the Senate and not have anything done for the next two years except blockades from Republicans at every turn. Messaging is definitely going to be something important to keep our eye on and see how it develops. We see the Republicans shaping up. Like we said, the Democrat strategy is shrub. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that and kind of see where everything goes and how it develops. So while we sit here and marinate and figure out what consistent messaging the Democrats are going to come up with, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got a few people that could just use a good old bless your heart. While he has shied away from more quote unquote partisan issues, Charles Koch has remained dedicated to forming a limited government. The ideal limits of that government 
would include limiting their ability to hold him accountable for environmental destruction, wage theft, and union busting, to name a few of his favorite tunes. Charles Koch, the more money I have, the more power I have. Thank you for joining us so far. As we close out today's segment, we've got a few people that could just use a bless your heart. It's bless your heart with Bobby June. Hello, hello. Oh my, you little angels. Look at you. Just so wonderful. Thank you. And bless your heart. Bless your heart. Drew, as our guest of the day, who needs a good old bless your heart? Oh, God. I'm going to have to award mine today to <sighs> Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. See, we all learned today due to Facebook's constant and horrible news that rolls out. They are going for a rebranding. <sighs> the name is Meta. A Meta. Oh, let's, let's just let that sit in for a moment. Hell yeah. It's This is their way of distancing Facebook from the actual conglomerate that is Meta, you know, instead of actually like rebranding and fixing the issues and making sure that their platform is not actually destroying the fabric of society and every democratic institution in this world, they are going to do a name change. And that's their rebranding, folks. You know, we can still have you know, Facebook being used in places like Burma, inciting genocide, or, you know, here helping to incite insurrection and lead people into more extremist views, fix all that. But you know what we're actually going to do is we're just going to do a name change because we don't want Facebook to be associated with the main conglomerate that is Meta. So, so my bless your heart has to go to Mark Zuckerberg. He's always He's, he's always going above and beyond to make sure he's not doing what's right. And I just have to applaud him for that. You know, I've never seen one human being be told that they're constantly doing something wrong. And instead of trying to fix it, they make everything worse. Hey, he is a big fan of ancient Rome. And I mean, that's why he has like the whole Marcus Aurelius haircut. Nero playing the fiddle while the, while the city burns. He's, and he's really leaning hard into that. Oh, God, but bless his heart, man. Gabe, Gabe, I'm interested. Who do you got this week? My bless your heart goes out to my favorite foreigner, and that is the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, who is currently facing uh, indictment charges for a whole slew. Like, there's, I forget all of the charges, but two of them are my absolute favorite charges you could ever have. One, pretty run-of-the-mill crimes against humanity. It takes a special kind of fuckery to get charged with crimes against humanity. You think he saw the card game and he was like, I want to be able to do that. He, he read Reagan's biography and he was like, damn, that guy was onto something. So, yeah, so Bolsonaro is facing charges of crimes against humanity for how he just completely failed Brazil with the pandemic. For instead of pushing vaccine access, he pushed fake cures like hydrochloroquine pretty sure he might have like thrown in some ivermectin in there as well because 
if you're not if you're not eating horse paste then what are you doing hey that stuff tastes like apples i hope you know that it does and it also makes you blow out your colon but my absolute favorite charge that president bolsonaro is facing right now is charlatanism i didn't know you could be charged for charlatanism and he managed a way to figure it out and a senate inquiry in brazil is introducing charges to their version of the attorney general to have him tried for a slew of crimes, including, like I said, including charlatanism. The likelihood of him being charged with any of these are slim to none because he, Bolsonaro, appointed the attorney general. But the good news is the crimes against humanity charge does go to an international panel. The only downside of that is they usually take several years on charges like that. But Brazilian president is now on the books of being a charlatan, and I'm, I'm here for it. We need more charlatans in power. They, they make it fun. They give us somebody to make fun of, and if you're a nice cynic like us, it's kind of interesting to watch the world burn around you. So bless your heart, Bolsonaro. I hope you can turn this from criminal charges into a cult. So you can really lean into being a charlatan for the 21st century. Maggie, you want to close us out? Who needs a good old bless your heart from you? I have a feeling that there's a whole lot of people that are going to need a bless your heart because they're going to be screaming about how their five to $10 coffee is now going to be paying people a living wage, a living wage. Cause there's a chance that if you work for Starbucks, that you could get paid anywhere from $17 to $23 an hour. And look, oh no, it's $15 to $23 an hour. Sorry. But during during the winter months, they will pay you like a dollar to $2 extra because it's holiday pay or whatever. But look, everyone has been having these huge debates on what is supposed to be minimum wage, blah, 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 blah. It shouldn't be up to federal because of all this stupid shit. Anyways, I'm very proud of you, Starbucks, for what you're doing. I am mad at you for saying that they didn't have to unionize to sit for any of this to happen because we all know that that's not true because they're trying to unionize in a couple of the different coffee shops, I think in New York. Starbucks read the writing on the wall for that one. It's like, oh shit, let's, let's go ahead and just jump the gun. Yeah, they were like, oh, sorry, we'll just go ahead and give you guys more money. But, you know, as someone who serves alcohol for a living, I think I could go back to serving coffee for a living because the people that I have to deal with are like zombies. I'd rather deal with, you know, the, the Zoom juice and the gloom juice is what I call it. I tell you what, so many people are going to be so butthurt about this. Just bless your heart because these people deserve a living wage, not a surviving wage, not a barely scraping by wage, but a living wage so that they could just work one job instead of 12. Especially like dealing with the people who come into Starbucks when you're getting your skinny unicorn half calf soy milk no whip cinnamon sparkle caramel drizzle bullshit people make them do these like outrageous custom drinks and then get pissed when they forget to put the drizzle on or if they only if they do two-thirds whipped cream instead of three-quarters whipped cream on the drink like I hope at the same time that these people are realizing how much Starbucks is going to be paying their workers, that they also realize that Starbucks pays as a, 
a scholarship for their workers to go back to school and earn a degree and then uh, move forward in their company or leave their company so that they can go do something that they dream of doing. Treating people like people. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, we had a great time today. Do you have an internet home or any pluggables, Drew? Yeah, make sure you are following Change Tennessee at ChangeTN underscore on Twitter. Uh, also, make sure you're following me. I'm at Andrew Dyson on Twitter as well. Uh, you can catch me retweeting Taylor Swift conspiracies as well as the latest news going on. So happy to join the uh, Mad Hatter Society over here. And what about you, Maggie? Where do you live on the World Wide Web? I live on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at L-I-L-M-I-S-S-K-N-I-T, Lil Miss Knit. And apparently I'm now an influencer because the indigenous-owned beauty brand that I've been raving about for forever has started showing all my stuff on their stories. So, <laughs> hello, I'm an influencer now. I'm just kidding, y'all. I just rave about their stuff because it's amazing. But uh, you guys can find me there either raving about indigenous beauty products, uh, indigenous rights, and land back. So holla. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at pod underscore south. You can find me on Twitter at gram851. Also, make sure to leave us those sweet, sweet five-star reviews as they help others discover us and hear the siren song of Appalachian leftists. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day. Pod, pod of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Pod, pod of the South, progress cannot wait.